Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's the Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud Fast Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. One of our newer sponsors here at the Shameless Picture Show is Kino Warber. With a library of over 4,000 titles, Kino Warber Incorporated has been a leader in independent art house distribution for 35 years, including 30 films per year theatrically under its Kino Warber Kino Repertory and Alive Mind Cinema Banners, garnering seven Academy Award nominations in nine years. In addition, the company brings over 350 titles yearly to the home entertainment educational markets through physical and digital media releases. With the expanding family of distributed labels, Kino Warber handles releases and ancillary media for Zeitgeist Films, Milestone Films, Cohen Media Group, Greenwich Entertainment, Artsploitation, Palisades Tartan, Raro Video, and others, placing physical titles through all wholesale, retail, and direct-to-consumer channels, as well as direct digital distribution through over 40 OTT services, including all major TVOD and SVOD platforms. If you'd like more information on Kino Warber and all the great titles they're putting out, be sure to check them out at www.kinowarber.com. That's K-I-N-O-L-O-R-B-E-R. KinoWarber.com Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers, and today I am joined by a very special guest, I have a good friend of mine and one of my favorite voices in the world of film culture. Wow. I, I always butcher your name, but I'm going to do my best. Josephine Maria Janicek Leschinski. Gorgeous. I was practicing all day at work. Beautiful. So how have you, how have you been, Josephine? It's, it's been like, like 
what couple weeks since we recorded Spice World. Couple weeks. I think I talked to you every single day, um, almost. Yeah, almost. Yeah, you know, uh, my life's really changed since we last were on the phone about two minutes ago. A lot of. Things I thought you were going to say your life has really changed since Spice World. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, it changed for the better after Spice World. That's that, for sure. That, I haven't um, looked at the numbers, but that that episode got a lot of love from people. I mean, it's a great episode. It's a great movie. You know, actually, I've had like I had like the shittiest week, mm-hmm. and I'm just excited for a new one to start. You know. Yeah. Like. Yeah, I like that. Let's I, go. Just, yeah, always upwards and onwards and Hell shit. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So, but um, like I said, this is this is our chance to kind of catch up. What have you been up to? Anything, anything interesting? Anything of oh note that you want to like I talk about? I am writing a manuscript Ooh. for what I hope will be the second published book of mine. Um, Fuck yeah! It's about okay. So I'll, I'll pitch it to you. So ostensibly, okay. it's about. I'm not going to pitch it. I'm terrible at pitches. I'm joking. I used to be in sales, oh, but too. I'm so bad at pitches. But okay. Ostensibly, it's like, I call it my horny werewolf book. Sold. (laughs) Thank you. Done. All right, done. No, but it's more. It's about um, when you go to like a show in a basement, right? A punk show or whatever. Hip hop show, whatever. And your crush is there. And, you know, you see them, but you want to seem kind of cool. So you don't approach them directly. You kind of like hang around near them, noticing them, but not really looking at them. And then hoping that maybe on the edge of the pit, your hands will, you know, just graze each other. Mm-hmm. It's that with werewolves. I, I, I want this already. All right. It's, it's, you know, underground music scene, horny werewolves, like... In my mind, this is like the romantic werewolf version of Green Room. All right. Hell yeah. Also, <laughs> there is a vampire orgy. So don't worry. I covered that demographic. It's, it's funny done. that I'm also working on something werewolf related. Hell yeah. I think everyone is. It's the moon. I mean, we're in the, um, we are in a waning half moon right now. But I do think this last moon really hit people in a weird way. Tell me about your werewolf project. So it's something that me and Amanda came up with together. All right. Um, Love her ideas. Love it. Yeah. We, we, came, we come up with the weirdest ideas together. Uh, the, the basic, like, uh, elevator pitch, and this mm-hmm. is actually its working title as well. So that's kind of fun where you, your, your, your elevator pitch can be your working title. Yeah. Uh, rear window with werewolves. Is that... <laughs> amazing amazing is this and is are you envisioning a film yeah it's gonna be like a little like a little short film because like so originally i just i just wanted to do this because i wanted to make a werewolf film yeah who doesn't yeah and uh because i thought just like you know you can you can do some really creative things with editing and only you don't you don't necessarily have to make an entire werewolf costume you can just have bits and pieces and you know just wrap someone in a fur coat or whatever macklemore style and just call it a werewolf um but uh, when I, I had a friend over recently and I was just kind of like talking about how I'm, I'm kind of, I've gone past the point of my filmmaking career where I have like these naive ideas that it's going to be like a, a actual career for me and going to make money. Like I don't care at this point because sure, <laughs> sure, like sure, it's sure. not, not going to happen. Like if it, whatever. Um, but I was saying, I was like, the only thing I really want to do like with my filmmaking career is I just want to make a feature film some point in my Hell life yeah. um 
and that's just that's just tough to do because money and so on and so forth mm-hmm. uh and all of my ideas just seem to be way more difficult to make than i anticipate um isn't that the and, curse of filmmaking though yeah it really like well that, there are some filmmakers and some really talented local filmmakers who are really good at making something out of nothing mm-hmm. or just you know using what they have and telling a story out of it like i find i think that's magical when someone can just look at what they have and put a story together and instead i'm over here being like what if i did rear window but with werewolves <laughs> um but we were talking up uh, amanda once again gave me a great idea and she's like, well, you have all these ideas for shorts. Why don't you just make one a year and put them together and make an anthology? Hell yeah. And I was like, that's not a terrible idea. Uh, you know, especially if I just, you know, if I'm while I'm making it, I tell, pretty much tell people, it's like, this is not going to be seen for quite a long while because I'm just banking content. Um, Mike, you coffee and cigaretted a werewolf film. Yeah, what what's, what the, what it eventually became is it's going to be my reinterpretation of the Universal Monsters because I have a <gasps> I have a werewolf story, I have a vampire story. Oh my god! I have um, um, I have the fledgling idea for some sort of like creature from the Black Lagoon type story. Oh, so I was like, oh, I'll just do my version of the Universal <laughs> Monsters. I fucking love that. If you don't use me as an extra or a dead body, I'm probably never gonna talk to you again. Like I'm just That's gonna, fair. I'm just gonna That's be real. Fair. Like, um, I'm so excited for this project of yours, Mike. Like I'm so excited to see where it is in like you know two years, three years, ten years. Like it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be incredible. Yeah, like, I, I'm, like, I'm hoping that it's something that I can really like focus on because like ultimately it's it's still gonna be difficult because I'm making monster movies but oh and and, oh and i have like i have a frankenstein idea that's actually really depressing i mean it's a depressing concept like there there i've i've seen no good versions of that story that are like not incredibly fucking bleak oh and actually speaking of frankenstein this is something we had an idea for for a feature film Mm -hmm. once again me and amanda come up with the greatest ideas together we were while walking around target of all places we're just going back and forth with like a frankenstein story but it's about so adorable goals you two are goals <laughs> continue uh but it would be uh about commenting on uh women's bodily autonomy uh-huh because it's uh it would be a a, a male doctor building a building a female uh-huh. and then like she was talking about like all these ideas that she she could put into it about like you know, since she was made, you know, ownership of her body and her own consciousness. And I was like, holy fuck, there's an idea here. <laughs> so we were, like, coming up with a feminist Frankenstein story. Yeah, that's, I mean, I love that. I think, um, I know I've talked about this before, not on the show, but um, when we look at movies like Deus Ex Machina, Her, um, and we're creating you know, humans ostensibly in one way or another, they're all female. You know, people Mm -hmm. have talked about like Alexa and Siri. Um, So totally, once you add a physical body to that, what that means um, changes in even more grotesque ways. Yeah. And like, because it all started because I told her, I just wanted to, Frankenstein's like one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And that story is pretty much free to use. 
And I was like, I want free to, use, yeah. to do my version of Frankenstein, and I just didn't have an idea. And then while walking around Target, we were just spitballing back and forth. I was like, what if we did this? What if we did this? And while looking at swimsuits and shit. Oh, yeah. That swimsuit section uh, makes me have some bodily feelings, too, because, God, <laughs> body image issues are real. Yes. In Target. But um, I am so glad that we started with talking about werewolves. Um because werewolves are a transformation, which is a major theme in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, it is. Transition complete. All right. Roll well, then, it. Since you're ready. We're just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to read my intro for the film. Um, today on the Shameless Picture Show, we're tackling something that has been on my shameless for quite a while. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. While the film is told in parts, the main storyline follows the crew of an American spacecraft called Discovery One on a journey to Jupiter. Most of the crew is in suspended animation except for Dr. David Bowman and Dr. Frank Poole. Together, along with their HAL 9000 computer, they work to keep the ship in working order until they reach their destination. Tensions rise, however, after HAL makes an error in his calculations and the scientists discuss restarting HAL. Hal, feeling this is a mistake, pushes back. What we eventually find out is that these scientists are on a journey to investigate a mysterious monolith that is sending signals to Jupiter. This monolith is believed to be of alien origin and was first seen during prehistoric times. What's the secret of this monolith? Is it to blame for everything happening on the ship? These are just a few of the questions 2001 A Space Odyssey leaves us with. 2001 A Space Odyssey was a daunting feat of filmmaking, helmed by a notoriously perfectionist director who didn't like science fiction. The film would go on to change not only the landscape of sci-fi, but filmmaking in general. Kubrick was adamant about trying to create a more realistic portrayal of space and space travel, and along with his collaborator, Arthur C. Clarke, they were able to make a science fiction film that was rooted in real-life technology that showcased a vision for the future that felt probable. The film struggled to find its audience at first. The critical opinion was mixed. Some felt felt the film was a marvel of filmmaking, while others felt it was a dull. Or sorry, felt it was dull. The film struggled to make its money, but made a newfound fan base of kids that were going to the theater to get stoned while watching it. <laughs> 1968, baby. Yeah, to the point where they're going to remove the theater, this film from theaters until theater owners are like, hold on a second. <laughs> Every there's night, money in those stoners. There's these kids in the front row. I think they're stoned, just really getting into this movie. Maybe we should keep it around a little bit longer. But despite all of this, the film would be nominated for four Academy Awards, and it won one of them for Best Visual Effects, and it won three out of five awards it was nominated for at the British Academy Film Awards. And the film is considered by many to be one of the greatest films ever made. 2001 A Space Odyssey stars Kier Delea. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Kier Delea. I don't know. I'm going to go with that. Kier Delea, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, and Douglas Rain as the voice of Hal. It features cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth with a script written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Directed by Stanley Kubrick from 1968, this is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. 
I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. spake Zarathustra, right? Yes. Gotta do it. Well, I'll play the trailer, and I'm sure it's in the trailer somewhere. It's gotta be. I mean, that's the... um, I think it's the trailer that I've seen for this film is the one that the Barbie trailer ripped off, so it's just the initial (laughs) scene with the apes. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, that trailer, I did not love. I don't love super derivative, like, homages like that, but um, I thought it was an interesting use of uh, gender and symbols of femininity um, as an, as the obelisk because the obelisk represents the you know points in mankind when we have leapt forward immensely um, mm-hmm. and kind of skipped over like ten thousand years of development. That's fine. Um, and so Barbie representing one of those is super interesting to me, especially because it is a plagiarized design. But like- anyway. Like, the oh, doll the is design. plagiarized. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like I remember hearing that in the Netflix show, The Toys That Made Us. They did an episode on Barbie. Oh, that's fine. And there was a lot of drama behind it. So Barbie. much. I wrote a um, an article on it for my high school newspaper, so a little bit of an expert. That is the <laughs> most Josephine story I think I could hear. Okay, anyway. It's Barbie, high school newspaper, all of it. (laughs) I Uh, imagine you had like one of those journalist hats on and everything. I had a press pass. I still have my press pass, (laughs) actually, from the Milwaukee High School of the Arts. Uh, Crimson Star. Ooh, Crimson Star. That was the name of your high school (laughs) paper? The Crimson Star? (laughs) 
That's fucking so, awesome. I went to a high school that was a performing arts public high school, and we didn't really have sports. We had sports that were like combined with other high schools, but I was, that was my high school too. Yeah, but so when um, hell yeah, when um, we did have sports, which was very very rarely, we were the Crimson Stars, which was like a huge joke. Mm. Um, to all of us, because it's clearly like kami, right? Like, where are the art commies? Like, oh, that shit. Was our, I didn't even yeah. put that together. I was just like, just thinking that's just a baller name. I mean, it is, but we, when we were picking like our high school, we had to reboot the newspaper. When we were picking our name, we picked the Crimson Stars, um, had to fight the principal on it because it was so clearly like a high schooler's joke, but we won. <laughs> so. Oh, I tried to pitch a really dumb joke for my high school too. So I went to I went to Ronald Reagan High School. Oh yeah, Reagan. Yeah, and man, he died right around the same time as James Brown, and we could have been James Brown High, but they just fucking wasted that. Reagan. But but um, our mascot was the Husky, and I just thought that's kind of boring. Like it's cute <laughs> and all, but um, I. Des- I, I drew up a design for an idea where they could still keep it the Huskies, but our mascot would be... You know those costumes they used to have where that, like, made it look like you were... Like, someone was riding on the back of someone yeah, or yeah. something? Like my a, idea, the dinosaur and horse and yeah, yeah. Yeah, my idea was to do one of those, but it was Ronald Reagan riding a Husky <laughs> and he'd throw <laughs> jelly beans at people. Sorry to snort on the, cat, on the podcast. Uh, that's hilarious. So, yeah. Tangent cool. over, you know, awesome. writing about Barbie and the and the in the Crimson Star. So yeah. yeah, this will be when I play the trailer. Going back beautiful. to that. beautiful, beautiful. Keep us on um, task. So yeah, as I said in my intro, this was a first time watch for me. This was one of those. So the thing I feel like is so beautiful about the concept of this show is there's plenty of times, there's plenty of like movies that you know you should have seen or should see, but you just. You don't want to, mm-hmm. like, you know, I wasn't necessarily opposed. Like, I refused to watch 2001: a Space Odyssey. I just, there was nothing really like stuck in my craw telling me I have to go watch this right now. It's like I knew it was like a sci-fi masterpiece, and people love it. But it's like sometimes when, there's just some movies it's like, oh, I'm sure I'm gonna like it. Why do I need to rush out to see it? That's so and this was one of them. Be my because like the science, the special effects in this film are like some of the best. And ever done. How now having seen it, I completely agree. But yeah. funny enough, I don't feel like anyone I knew was really talking about that. I, I feel like you had already seen it. Is why no, no, and uh, and I feel like I saw this movie at the right time because mm-hmm. uh, I I feel like unless I would have seen it in a theater when I was younger, I don't feel like I would have appreciated this movie. Is this is this was a strange movie for me because. It. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. It's rare that I I I love a movie as much as I loved this, and I have no idea what the fuck I was going on. <laughs> yeah, I think your um your cut your text to me was LOL what? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. But and and you know originally we were gonna have my friend Austin on the podcast, but he just was completely honest with me and just said he was having a hard time really grasping what this movie's about because I think he had just it was in the process of watching it and and i told him I was like don't feel bad i i watched it days ago and i needed to i had to read about it and like watch every special feature on the disc to even just 
kind of formulate where I stood on it. Like, this movie needs fucking time. Yeah, I was I was kind of surprised. I mean, granted, if it had been any other movie, it would have made sense. But I was surprised you watched it, like, a couple of days ago and then wanted to record a podcast on it. Like, that was shocking to me, having seen it. And I've seen it probably a dozen plus times. Like, I've seen this film quite a bit. And I... I didn't watch it between before this podcast because I knew I would just be like back in that space of like what is well, going on, and, and then it's, but at the same time, like I had no idea what to expect going into it for sure. Uh, so I didn't know that that was the wrong way to do well, it. Of like, course, I, no, of course, um, but it, but yeah, it, I, I see why I, it was overwhelming. And I and I will say this movie, this movie is interesting in that it reminds me of Apocalypse Now in mm-hmm. that. Apocalypse Now and 2001 Space Odyssey are big classics of cinema. Whether you like them or not, they're, mm-hmm. they are classics of their genre. They are considered by many to be some of the greatest films ever made, which is surprising because they're both very challenging movies. They're not the mm-hmm. movie you expect going into them. Yeah. Um, and it's actually surprising. So another little bit of tangent. I I'm in a lot of like home theater spaces in terms of you know discussion online and most people who are in who are really big into the world of home theater are i watch i watch movies i I use my home theater so i can appreciate movies more most people i feel like watch movies so they can appreciate how much money they've spent Mm -hmm. (laughs) so they watch drivel Lots of action movies, lots of, you know, big, stupid shit. I was very surprised by just doing a tertiary search on a couple of these pages. How many people in these home theater pages who have the attention spans of fucking, you know, children like this movie? And it's and that's what's so surprising about this and 2001 Space Odyssey is they're essentially big budget epic art films. Yeah. That should not have caught on with an audience as much as they did considering what people's attention spans are like. Uh, can I put a little perspective on that? Please, please do. I'm just kind of all over the place. All right. I, well, I was thinking about this before um, before this started. And number one, the special effects, they were new when the film came out. You know, like from the beginning, we opened with these gorgeous models. Um there's still stuff in this movie I can't figure out how the fuck There are things that no one can figure out. We can get into that in a little bit. But, like, mm-hmm. Kubrick, such a D-bag. Love him to death. Such a D-bag talking about this movie. And people don't know how he did parts of it. Um, because he won't tell you. Anyway. So, one of the first movies ever, you know, played in a theater was uh, Melies's Trip to the Moon. Right? Yes. We're going to space. And that is about the moon. It's about landing on the moon. But it's also about the process of getting there. You have these, you know, very sexy women putting together their rocket. They get on the rocket and they all go together to the moon. It's very fun and romantic. And you're not sure what they're going to see when they're up there. Then we get up to 1968 when this film comes out. We're still talking about space. But also in 1968, the first Apollo mission launches. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at exploring space finally, something that's been talked about in science fiction and envisioned on film. You know, um, Trip to the Moon was 1902. So we're talking about 66 years of Mm -hmm. screen time being devoted to space in one way or another. And finally, we as humans are going there in a very real way. And Americans. 
And then now we're going to show the grandeur of it and what it could mean for us in an era when airplane travel was very normalized. You know, like um, the first ship that you really experience um, with the characters is an airplane. It's a space airplane. Uh, I think it's called the Orion. Yeah, and it's so and, and it's so mundane for this yeah. character that he fell asleep. Yep. Yep. Like exactly. it's 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 treated as just like well th- this is just my commute, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's it's you you talking about you know like from 1902 to 1968, and like you said the 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 you said the first Apollo mission correct? Yes. And it's it's even more flabbergasting to me to think that when this movie was being made, we hadn't gone to the moon yet. Right. But yet the way that Kubrick depicts like people in space is very reminiscent of that early footage from the moon. Well, remember that... Um... Well, okay, yes, sorry. Yes, we. to be fair, we had this, some of the science, like we had figured out the science mm, yeah, and how people yeah, yeah, move yeah. and things like that. And we, um, I don't know if this is true, uh, so speaking about that first airplane trip that uh, our main character takes, there is the scene with the floating pen, which is done with a piece of plexiglass. Yeah, um, they show that on, the, on the features. Tape. It's so simple. Simple and, but and beautiful. elegant, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like the best special effects. Kubrick, but the scene where um, she is floating, there's a lot of rotating sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple of the floating scenes in that scene um, are very, very hard to replicate. And people have tried, and they can't quite figure out how he did it. When I was in physics class, and we were learning about centrifugal force, we learned about parabolic flights, where you can take an airplane and drop it at a specific um uh, angle for some mm-hmm. for like an exact amount of time. It's like 4.88 seconds before um, gravity will pull it to the ground before you can pull back up safely. And so there's an argument that he was like shooting, which they do in movies. They they did it for the movie Gravity. Um, they'll have these like like set planes where they will film these fake floating scenes sometimes um, instead of like mm-hmm. doing it in a pool or something like that. It's like it's crazy. Um, very rare, very expensive. And, like, there's some argument that that was sort of going on, but I don't know, like, I don't know if that's how it was done. But the idea that it could have been shot on a, mo- on a, on a plane and be set in a plane um, sounds like a paranoid idea, but I think you know, that's... Um, well, and then just some of those rotating sets, you know, like, I'm with my, my filmmaker brain sitting there, like... There, there's one specifically where they're like walking through, essentially like this this hallway, and and then the the, um, the room at the end of the hallway is spinning, and then they get into it, and then they're rotating with the hallway. And I was like, okay, clearly the camera is is what's turning instead of them, but then it's like, well, at a certain point, it. The only way I can make sense of it is to think like, well, I want a, it must be a combination of the room turning and the camera turning, and at one point they switch. Because when they're walking down that hallway, we would we would be aware if the camera is turning, so the room must be turning. But then when they get into the room, the room must have stopped turning, and the camera had to start turning because there's no way they could have accomplished that effect, right. at least not in a way that I can make sense of. And there's just like. 
just from a pure craft standpoint, there's just so much going on. And it's fascinating because it's all set around, and I don't mean this in a derogatory term, it's all set around a film where not much is happening. Right. But yet so much is happening. I And I think that is something that captured people's imaginations as well. I mean, it opened with this very standard, um, you know, white professional man who's going to his job. He's taking a very normal trip to his job. And then Kubrick created this beautiful, believable world around him using special effects mm-hmm. um, in such an interesting way. And it, the places that it goes are completely different, of course, but we have our standard everyman, or, or yep. the idealized everyman at least, and then an amazing different thing is going to happen to him. And he's always going somewhere, right? And at the end, he goes to the ultimate place, which is, you know, some sort of evolution. Um, I was reading an article before this about, that was supposedly explained how Kubrick did all of his special effects. And it was like a word-for-word copy of something he said in an interview. And it just sounds, it's definitely Kubrick, but it just sounds so... um, I don't know, wildly magical. I don't mean that in like a positive way. I mean, in like, it's like this magical alchemical formula where he, he says some bullshit about, we knew we were going to have like whatever, 120 special effects and we were going to break them down each into 10 steps. And then that's how we made this film. So everything actually makes a lot of sense because you just follow the 10 steps to get to the next special effect. And it's just like this, like that doesn't explain anything. What are you talking about? Like, you just made up some shit, um, you know, on how to be the most efficient person or something. It just He just sounds like he's selling a self-help book. Like, just crazy. Yeah. Just useless and crazy. Like, not helpful. That's K- Kubrick. Yeah. There he is. There he, he, he is. He, useless and not helpful. <laughs> ah, but also kind of a genius, so. An absolute genius and um, devoted to his family in, like, a really specific way. A, a way that's I don't know rare for some of these artists. Yeah, um, like you, 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 you hear stories of what he's like on set and like his perfectionism level, and you just you create an image in your mind of what this man must be like. But then to find out that he was a loving family man, you're like, what? Yeah, how did that work? You know, his kids, you know, love him. Like they don't, uh, they aren't, yeah. estr- they weren't estranged at the end of his life. You know, no, and like. That's just, it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. Absolutely. It's like, yeah, I can't, I can't quite, you know, it's kind of like um, when you hear about like, like you said, any of these like big um, larger than life figures, it's weird to picture them as real people. Yeah. It's almost impossible. Um, but I love that he made movies that make me sound like a fucking conspiracy theorist discussing them. Well, then you got something like The Shining. They made a whole entire documentary breaking down all the potential hidden yes. meanings behind it. And it, at the end of the day, it's like, you, you wonder, it's like, did it, was any of this intentional? Was he just trolling everyone? Who knows? Because he was very, he kept everything very, to, very close to him. Yes. Yes, and I think he I think he just made a very, I won't say this about all of his films, but he made several extremely unsettling films, um, mm-hmm. and I think it 
some of it breaks down to that perfectionism that um uh you know very formulaic perfectionism it's uncomfortable you know like we talk about like perfect symmetry is very uncomfortable for humans and things like that even though we're attracted to it it's very um sublime to go back to the beginning of you know cinema um we're talking about like a sense of wonder in this Mm -hmm. fear this way that's both horrifying and and draws us to it um and i think both 2001 a space odyssey and the shining contain massive quantities of that in a way, in ways that I'm not sure his other films do even like eyes wide shut. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, this idea of symmetry making you uncomfortable mm-hmm. because you're absolutely right. And it's, you know, like there, there there's times where this film just was felt like a straight horror movie at times. Yeah. Um, but then it's, it's also interesting when we're talking about it because we've we've talked about this topic before about how I have a, a complete like detachment from pretty much almost everything Wes Anderson does and I wonder <laughs> if it's because of that fucking this overuse of symmetry where I just I I feel yeah. uncomfortable watching his movies even the ones I like I just feel uncomfortable all the time I do think that um that sense of symmetry, but also perfection, that perfectionism mm-hmm. that's so uncomfortable and unattainable, um, plays into this film, but also um, the mid-century attitudes that it's pulling on. I think there's something a little suburban about the beginning of the story, and where it goes is very unknown. Um, I just want to like also put this in context of science fiction that was exploding at this time. Um, Mid-century science fiction, we get Foundation by Asimov, which is about a massive plan for the human race. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie is based on the first, it pulls in elements from the other ones, but the first of four books that were first written in the 60s through 1998, I believe is the last one. Um, And it is is also about a sort of a plan, but it's about continuous evolution of um, humans and, and after interacting with aliens and all these other things. But for me, looking at this from like an American mid-century perspective, America has reached a very normalized sense of what perfection looks like. You know, Mm -hmm. America is supreme, American supremacy. Um, White supremacy is happening uh, in a much more muted way for many like white suburbanites who are very comfortable in their enclosed communities. Um, So they weren't seeing a lot of the conflict that was happening um, within the cities, uh, they kept it outside of their home and all, of, and we start to get this mass commercialism of what our lives are supposed to look like. And everyone is perfect, right? We have our p- pink refrigerator. We each have our own Cadillac. We have our nuclear family. We go to the perfect school and that's all attainable. The white picket fence, as long as you work hard enough, but then what's next? You know, mm-hmm. we know that that can't remain and something is going to change something. And it might mean there's something else where we feel that we're missing something. And what is it? And in 2001 a Space Odyssey, we evolve after contact with this, you know, alien obelisk into something. Is it greater? Is it just strange? We don't know. Yeah. And it's interesting that like this, this, what I found once I kind of was along for the ride, I grew to really appreciate it, but it, it confused me at first. This movie is like almost like a three-act play. It is exactly like a three-act play. Good call-out. Continue. And 
what I find fun is so each in each act they have a interaction with this monolith, this this structure. Yeah, the monolith. Sorry, I keep calling it an obelisk, but it is a monolith. Uh, they keep having this interaction with it, and you know, during the prehistoric times with the the apes, mm-hmm. you know, their reaction to it, it you know, it essentially taught them how to use tools for killing, mm-hmm. and then. Um, in the second act, it's, I don't quite know what it did. Like, it, it, it made him disappear, I guess. <laughs> um, but my point is that in each, in each act, it's, it has a different effect on the people that come in contact with it. So it's, it, that's what I found so just engaging about this was, it's hard to pinpoint what it's doing because it's affecting different people in different ways. It's not like, I feel like the low hanging fruit, like I feel like a lesser, lesser artist would have just made it. Oh, when you get close to this thing, it makes you go crazy. We don't know what it does because, um, um, Dr. Bowman, his journey with this structure is completely different than anything that's happened before. Like he's it's almost into like another realm. I would argue too that we're um, reacting to the unknown. Like we're not yeah. supposed to know. We can't comprehend what mm-hmm. he is about to what he's going through and why. Um, I also I want to bring up the I want to bring up Hal. So you mentioned the use of technology. Um, Mm -hmm. in the beginning and that I love that scene I love um, there's a book I read in college uh, for an anthropology class by a a Chicago University of Illinois at Chicago professor called War Before Civilization and it uses um, these studies that have been done since the mid-century into the 90s um, on pre-humans studying their, their um, you know, artifacts and their bones and eventually their DNA. Um, and basically there's an argument that killing each other is what caused us to evolve in one way or another. That and there's, there's some il- oh, elements of cannibalism that um, we have uh, proof that like humans were eating each other very early on um, because of uh, brain bacteria that you get from cannibalizing. Like cannibalizing is not healthy for us. Um, or any animal, from what I understand, this you know all of this could have been updated, but um, I haven't been in college in a long time. But this this book is fascinating. <laughs> it's very short. It's a very good book. But these ideas were starting to um, come to the forefront in the mid century because we were discovering these like bone cudgels and um, you know axes and things that were that were clearly made for killing and not just mm-hmm. like separating logs or chopping down trees or whatever. Um, so there we have this leap forward in technology, but even before the obelisk shows up, or the monolith, sorry, in the modern, what what is in the film, I guess I'm going to call the modern era, which is the, the space flight era, um, we've created life. We've created some form of life. So this is this massive leap forward in technology, and it's happened without the monolith, and now it's mm-hmm. like inserting itself back into our timeline. Yeah, it's almost like the monolith gave the idea mm-hmm. like just the vague idea of a tool 
and then these 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 pre-humans found a way you know used it and then you have that great transition shot of them throwing the bone up in the air and then you know then seeing a spaceship it's like oh you know the first tool to our current tools yes you know like it's that transition is just beautifully done because it just takes us through space and time and you know, gives us, a, you know, like I said, we, we see the snapshot of how it be, you know, how it's going, where it's at, you know, type of deal. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That's, uh, I also think conflict is central to the narrative. Um, the conflict over the, I think, I, I can't remember if they're fighting over the corpse of something. Someone's saying a fireworks, sorry. Um, whether they're fighting over the corpse of something or water or both or whatever, but um, in the beginning. And then mm-hmm. Hal's conflict with um knowing that he's going to be shut down or that these humans are imperfect and need to be you know oft um also the idea that our our first creation of life um of sentient life the first thing it does is kill humans right which is like what how we got to where we are first thing we did was kill each other and now Mm -hmm. hal with his newfound sentience he's like playing chess with these dumbass humans and is like you know what I'm just gonna. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with this, and just offs them, like. Yeah, you know, and it's it's almost like this fear reaction mm-hmm. from you know, like, well, I can't make mistakes, so it must be you making the mistake. I'm built to be perfect, and yeah. it's you know that whole idea of, you know, we built the tools, but then the tools don't need us. Also, I love that how. Um, we're putting a gender on him. I mean, Hal must be non-binary. I think they refer to mm-hmm. him as he, but like, how could he, you know, what would define a gender or whatever mm-hmm. for him? But also like the idea that in our actual real world, we've created all AI-like intelligence to be female. And then in this in this view, this fictional view of the future from 1968 and from the books, Hal is, you know, male, ostensibly. So what does that mean? Like, you know, because he's running things, because he's engineer-like, like, what does that mean that this massive new tool is this big, smart man? Um, I think is important and a very different trajectory than where we ended up, even though we did, you know, we yeah. we, we have been to space now, we've been to the moon, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I like the, I like the Simpsons way of thinking about it. They just, <laughs> they just chose Pierce Brosnan because he had the best sounding voice. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I never thought about it until you just mentioned it now that, you know, like all these voice assistants, Siri, Google, Alexa, they they all natively have a female voice. Yes. You can change that. And I've never put any thought in, in as to why, but you making the point that that's where we ended up. And then, you know, the vision of the future has a male voice. It's I've never put that together. I've never really thought about that. Interesting. Yeah. I don't quite know where I land on it, but it's something that it's just now it's just ruminating in my brain. Yeah, and I mean, I could make up a bunch. You know, I could like I could like extrapolate and try to make up stuff. I do think um, where the workforce ended up was very different than what they planned in 1968. You know, like there was a much more equal workforce even like 10 years later. Um, you know, we, we get nine to five, the film, we think about the film nine to five, right? Secretary. love that movie. Yeah. Well, who doesn't? It's the perfect film, but we talk about 2001 Space Odyssey. Let's talk about the real perfect movie. Nine to five. <laughs> nine to five. Um, but you know, the, we're looking at 
you know, a workforce that is growingly more equal um, in gender, mm-hmm. if not in rights, since we still don't have an Equal Rights Act. But, you know, yeah. maybe someday a girl can dream. So let me let me reverse the conversation a little bit. Yeah. So, like I said, when when I first texted you about it, you were my first person I thought to text about it. Because we've never discussed this movie, but I was like, if anyone I know likes this movie or always has an appreciation for it, it's going to be Josephine. Correct. Um, Nailed it. And you said you you told me that you you love this movie. What is your history with this movie? Like you said, you saw it at a pretty young age. I saw it for the first time at six years old. Um, that and seems it really young for this scared movie. Scared the fuck out of me. I'm like, not surprised. On like a deep like um like philosophical level. Like I still like get like I feel that fear like talking about my first experience with this movie. Um, so as I've talked about before, especially when we were talking about Dune, my mother is a huge science fiction fan. Giant. Um, she loves Dune. Your mom seems cool. My mom's cool as fuck. Throw it out there. She's cool. She's cool as fuck. Um, but she, you know, I was introduced to Dune through her, David Lynch's Dune, but she read all the Dune books, all the Dune novels. Um, I don't know if she read 2001 Space Odyssey. Both her and I have kind of similar ideas about like Asimov's foundation. Um, boring. It's boring. But, but, um, with 2001 Space Odyssey, the film, um, yeah, she had us watch it. Like, I remember being on her bed while she was, like, um, sewing up my stuffed animal, Sandy, who I still have, my, my elephant. She, you know, I, I the dog had attacked her or something. And so she was, like, sewing up my stuffed animal. And so I'm sitting there with her, you know, with one hand on my ele- elephant so she's not scared. And then watching this movie... And, like, just getting terrified. And by the time the Star Corridor scene came on, I was so fucking scared. And my mom just, like, handed me, you know, Sandy so I could hold her. Um, and then I watched it again with her, like, years later. She rented it somewhere. And I've, I've seen it a couple of times, but I finally saw it in theater in, like, the original film version for the Milwaukee Film Festival one year. I think it mm. I think it was the same year they played Beyond the Black Rainbow, so it must have been like 2014, 2013. Yeah, that seems pretty thematic, yeah. Yeah. So, and they were both like I think they were both midnight movies. So like I went to one one night and the other the next night or whatever. Um, but I can't I can't imagine watching this movie at midnight just because I don't think I could stay up that late. I tried again when I was in Chicago. Um, I was on a date with my my new partner at the time, and we got to like the halfway through act two and we looked at each other and we both seen the movie and i was like do you just want to go home and pass out and they were like yes and that's what we did we felt so guilty like standing up in the dark and like walking to the back of the theater but i slept real good after that like just real good um but yeah i don't like i i don't have like a very special history with this film aside from having seen it from very young and having seen it at different points in my life um not quite mirroring the monolith but I've I've certainly seen it in every major relationship I've ever been in. Um, I watched it with my mother, who's a very central figure in my life. Um, I watched it in college for a special effects course that I was in. So yeah, I don't know. I've seen it in all these different viewpoints with all these different people. So I have I have a lot of thoughts on it, a lot of feelings about it. No, and that and that's great. And I think and I told you off off mic before earlier in the day because you'd asked me like what my history with this movie is and what you know with uh what my history of or what my relationship is with science fiction and i told you that i'm still kind of delving into it and 
this has been a running kind of topic throughout the span of this show where I didn't like science fiction for the longest time. You know, I, I liked Star Wars fine because mm-hmm. that just doesn't, honestly, we're at the point that doesn't feel like science fiction. That's fan. That's fantasy in the stars. That's correct. It's, it doesn't feel like science fiction. You watch the first Star Wars, you can definitely see that George Lucas was inspired by this movie in a big fucking way. But where Star Wars has gone, yeah, is not is you know not really science fiction anymore. But where my relationship with it is, I I think at a young age I just saw some really dull science fiction films. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of stuff from the forties and the fifties. You know, I I, I joke and call it lab, yeah, I, I jokingly call it lab coat porn. Just you know, white dudes in lab coats explaining what's going. on. I just thought it was also fucking dull. But what I've been discovering the last couple of years, especially started doing this show, and with um, as I've grown progressively more tired with Star Wars, I've been delving more into Star Trek, mm-hmm. and I've been finding that. It wasn't that I disliked science fiction. I just hadn't found the right science fiction. Um, and I'm finding myself, you know, like I said, through things like Dune and Star Trek and now this, that there's a def- definitely a certain tone and pace that I I get a lot of enjoyment out of. Um, you know, something like, like this, it's not action-oriented. There's definitely some exciting scenes mm-hmm. in the film but it's a film that it kind of just takes its time it's about you know life on this spaceship it's it's almost there's almost like this um for as much as this movie at times makes space travel just kind of seem like the norm there's also like i found to be this um this like almost loving fascination with it mm-hmm. um you know, whereas I was watching this, I feel like I do when I'm watching Star Trek, where I'm like, oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to go. I wanted to be mm-hmm. an astronaut. I wanted to be in space. And I get that from uh, that feeling again while watching this or watching Star Trek. And I, 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 I weirdly like the slower pace and the tone. And it's quite somber. And I don't know. It's I'm still kind of putting thoughts into where I'm... I'm sitting with my relationship with science fiction, but I like it a lot more than I thought I had. I love that. Can I give a little timeline of science fiction to lay down some vocab? Please. All right. So the era of science fiction we're talking about now, this this later mid-century um, science fiction, Kubrick ushered in a very different era of science fiction that was in line with what was happening in the literature. And science fiction started as so many genres in literature, right? It started with mm-hmm. comics, and with stories, um, and eventually books. And early science fiction, um, so I love it, we brought up Frankenstein in the beginning of this. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is largely considered the first science fiction novel. So it, mm-hmm. it was written by a woman, written by, what they say, a bored girl at a tiring orgy, um, as we all have been at one point in our lives. And, Guilty. <laughs> and she created the genre of science fiction. And that the question the at the center of that story was, you know, about manhood as in human, you know, nature and human identity, which is very much a question in this film. So you don't see, um, you know, you don't see that go away. But... After that, we get we get through the Victorian era and whatever, and then we enter into a much more um, 
you know, World War One happens, and then everything starts getting real sexy. We get to the 20s, um, and we start getting the schlocky, what is the beginning of, like, the I call the Flash Gordon era of <laughs> science fiction, um, which I think early Star Wars, or Star Trek, sorry, is still, like, really falling into in a lot of ways. Like, the um, uh, who was the first captain in Star Trek? I'm, like, blanking. Kirk. Yeah, my mother's never going to talk to me again. Cool. Kirk. So Captain Kirk, um, we're still in this very sexy, um, sensory, you know, adventure era of science fiction, which also doesn't really go away. I would say that a lot of Star Wars pulls from that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we get into the mid-century and we start getting these really heavy science fiction stories dealing with social science, social science fiction and culture. So we get... um, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein, which is about uh, relationships and in some ways gender, but mostly um, it introduces the idea of polyamory and romantic relationships in a science fiction setting. It's about a man from Mars who grew up on Mars. Um, and then we get into like the Star Trek era where we're talking about social science fiction. We're commenting. We still have that action element, that adventure element, but then we start getting later versions of Star Trek, which incorporate that sublime wonder at space, right? We have the beautiful technology. Um, And 2001 Space Odyssey really introduced hard science fiction to cinema. And hard sci-fi, when we talk about hard versus soft, soft is the social stuff, the cultural stuff, Uh, maybe some aliens hard science fiction is giving you numbers it's giving you technology so the invention of the ansible in science fiction that's ursula k le guin she is hard she is she was a a physics she um she you know had a degree in physics like we we have these very high level concepts that are coming into science fiction i think 2001 space odyssey is the most hard science fiction i've ever seen in my life um interstellar is kind of like the next installment of that i didn't love interstellar but it, it it ventures into that territory as well but when we talk about science fiction and like the the star trek versus this versus star wars this is as hard as it gets yeah so you can almost make like a tone scale yes uh off of science fiction you know if this is like you know in terms of just hardcore science fiction 2001 space Odyssey would be like a 10 mm-hmm uh, I don't know what a one would be, but you know, and then you got everything. Flash that's kind Gordon. Of, yeah, and then you got everything that's kind of in between, and it's interesting. This movie is interesting too because in you you had said something when you're kind of giving your timeline of science fiction. You talked, you described Star Trek as being almost like this this love for space, like this um, you know, it's a new adventure because like mm-hmm. Star Trek, in a lot of ways, is a western in space in yes. that we they are a um you know just they're on a wagon train going from area to area discovering new worlds and we still have a little manifest destiny but we don't need to get into that go ahead yeah, yeah, yeah. but then you have you know it's like this this they don't necessarily fear space they're excited by it but yes. then you got you know like the cosmic horror of something like H.P. Lovecraft where, you know, space is something to be feared. Evil things come from space. Mm -hmm. You don't know. And then this movie kind of sits somewhere in the middle. It treats space as a very as-a-matter-of-fact thing where it's almost like Kubrick, he... It's almost like he doesn't have an opinion about it. Like, he doesn't know if he fears it or if it excites him. It just is. Right, and I think that's... um... 
a little bit of a commentary. It's a great commentary to draw back into the story of this movie, which is very much humans have their shit figured out. Like we're able mm-hmm. to travel through space. We have our life trajectory ahead of us. Um, and now we're about to discover this monolith and the unknown is coming for us, whether we are comfortable or ready for it or not. Yeah, and honestly, that that unknown, that that monolith, that something is coming from space that we don't understand, even though we are actively traversing through space, reminded me of some of the Lovecraft that I've read, because that's something he writes quite a bit about, Mm -hmm. is just this unknown thing. And it's not treated in the same way, you know, it's... (laughs) His unknown is like other races, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's like... It's so interesting to me that just be, because of the way that they constructed this film, that a just fraction of a black wall, yes. <laughs> that's what it is, could just add so much fear. Like that scene of the first crew tra- uh, traversing on the moon as they when they are approaching the monolith, and the way that they constructed that scene and with the, with the sound design is incredible. Like, it's a f- truly frightening scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that I... it's it's it, This movie is so interesting to me in that... I think I mentioned this before, how it's such a complicated production wrapped in something relatively simplistic. And that even comes down to its narrative. Like, it, there there is a very... There's not a lot of plot getting in the way of the story. It's very simple. To the point where I was actually struggling to to just to wrap this film up because mm-hmm. it's like there's so little happening, but a lot is also happening. But then, like even the sound design in this film, movies nowadays are just a barrage of fucking sound mm-hmm. coming at you from every which direction. This movie, it's like there's so little layering of sound. It's like there's times where it's like almost feels like it's one sound after another. And it just plays out for like as long as it needs to. Like those, there's a scene of just breathing, and that's all the sound that you'll get is just someone breathing. And then maybe another sound will just start coming in, and it's almost like seeing an orchestra perform, and how each individual piece slowly comes in to create one thing. Like, all these individual pieces come together to make something as a whole. I feel like I'm at a presentation of Peter and the Wolf right now, Mike. (laughs) Like, that was such a beautiful, like, um, I don't know, Sesame Street, like, introduction of an orchestra. And I mean it. I I love love those um, kind of introductions. And I think you're right. I think that that also speaks very much to um, Kubrick's approach to film. Also, um, who did... Uh, music on this? Who did the soundtrack? Uh, well, technically the soundtrack's all um, orchestra, so I don't know if they have necessarily composers. Let's see. Yeah, it, it just it just lists composers. I don't think they had anyone necessarily composing well, the music. Well, let's just credit Douglas Trumbull and uh, Kubrick then. That's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's someone else and we're just gonna have someone come out of their grave for us, but... Well, uh, I'm I'm looking at the credits currently, and no one's listed. All right. Well, good job, Kubrick Trumbull team. Um, I do think that's also how Trumbull. Sad. Well, I will say, I wish I wish he was working with, with Wendy Carlo at this time because that. Oh could my have been god! Interesting. I want to see the Wendy Carlo cut. Um, oh fuck yeah! 
Somebody do it. Someone do it. YouTube, don't let me down. But I think that that is a part of how the cinematography plays into the movie, especially when you have these beautiful effects of like the floating pen and the beautiful air hostess reaching for it. And then him waking up from his nap, like all, you know, and then now we have, now we have a scene of an airplane. Okay. Now it's something that we recognize. We're an airplane in space. We get it. But Douglas Trumbull's um, special effects as well, the way that he built them. um, I'm thinking of like the star corridor scene Mm -hmm. where he knew we had to have something unknown and strange and uninterpretable. So he created the star corridor, which is done. I um, mean, the star corridor scene is a lot of, it looks like a lot of flashing colorful lights coming at the That's That's you. like the end. That's like yeah. the ending. Yeah. Se- yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, Oh God, I, I was looking up how they did it. It's, um, split screen photography, Yeah, split screen. And then I think also using mirrors and so here's how on. they did it. I, I, I took a class on it. So let me, let me go into essay form here. Please. please. Um, and I, I don't know the tactical, like you're the tactical expert. I, I can I'll, I'll fill in it. details yeah. as we go. So what he did was he took a camera and he masked the outside of the lens. So he, you know, and he, to create this, um, this slit essentially, for, yeah, for those of you listening at home to mask the side of the lens, essentially means he covered it up. Yeah, he cut. Co- yeah, thank you. He covered it. Um, it's where we get the word masking tape from, the term masking tape. It, it's to cover something. And then he moved, he would move the camera back and forth um, to get the, the colored images. But to create these colored images, he didn't just take like panels of colors or something. He um, illuminated photographs. And, and the photographs that he used, this is where like that orchestra metaphor comes in. Um, he wanted to construct something known but unknown. So he actually took photos of things. And it was things like close-up crystals and images of like flower gardens and all these random images and illuminated them on the opposite side. So we're, we're getting like almost transparencies. And then fo- like photographed those to create the scene. And it was edited afterwards. Like there was definitely post being done. Yeah. But... Um, it's not just like beautiful, like a bunch of colors that he's switching back and forth very quickly. It's actual images that you cannot pick out of the original cut, but they were drawn from things that we ostensibly should know at some level, even if it's like a molecular level. Yeah, it's and it's it's this great sense of invention. Yes, that I I found myself really appreciate because like yeah, you could you could create that on a computer easily. And I'm sure a lot of these the people who are doing these I'm not going to like discredit what a visual effects artist on the computer can do because I'm sure a lot of them put this kind of thought into it. But it's just, when you watch this movie, you can just it it feels handmade because it it was. You can you can feel the labor. And the fact that we live in a world and this is what so excites me so much about film and filmmaking that with everything that i know about how this is done that like we said earlier i still can't figure out how some of this is done i have ideas Mm -hmm. but we don't know it's honestly like it kind of reminds me of what it must feel like for someone to discover a new world in a way where Mm -hmm. i can't wrap my mind around it i can see it in front of me but i can't believe that it's real I love that. And I think this film, um, you talked about, you know, I keep bringing up this I, this word wonder, but um, I, you know, I've seen this movie a dozen times, let's say. And I, every time, still have that same sense of wonder that you're describing. 
um, that discovery of a new world and very few pieces of media make me feel that in science fiction. Um, I'm going to call out a couple of them. One of them is Arrival by Villeneuve. I've not, I've not seen that, but I've, okay. it, it's on my short list of things I need to see soon. So fucking beautiful. And so many people have like issues with it or whatever. The ship design in it is thrilling. It, 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 I think it, it digs into something that's very Trumbull-esque. And definitely, I think there's some monolith conversations happening visually with with the the ship design in that film that but that movie is based on a story from a collection by ted chiang um and it's the story of your life and that story i read before arrival was even announced and i wept at the end of it um i think in the movie the way they present it is a little corny it's different than the book and it's or in the the short story I found it a little bit corny, but still very effective. The other book that I want to call out, it's a book, is um, Octavia Butler's Survivor, which she has, like, she disowned at one point, Um, which is too bad because I think it's a really fucking great novel and there are definitely criticisms of it. But it's the same extreme sense of unknown. And in that, somebody who has touched the unknown and understands it and has connected deeply with it comes back to humanity. And is like, oh. and you know, sort of this, is she an agent of this unknown? Is she bringing something back with her to tell us? Like, um, and that I think is very ecological in Origins, but, um, and that one's very hard. I had to or be on a wait list with the library to get it for like three months. Like it was very difficult to get. And the copy I got is like this like very expensive first edition that they just rent out or lend out, you know, it's fine. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. But in any case... Um, my point is that this film does something that so few pieces of media are able to achieve. And that sense of wonder, that sense of discovery. Um, and I have experienced it in one way or another every single time I've watched this movie. So that's incredibly special. Whatever my feelings about Kubrick are and, uh, you know, my issues as like a modern non-binary queer scholar about the lack of people of color in this film and, you know, the the incredible heterosexuality of the movie and whatever else, I still, something in this film touches me very deeply in like a very Mm -hmm. special way. And I think that um, deserves uh, credit. Yeah. And it's like, it's, I, there's just something about this movie. It's, it's, uh, you know, this is terrible analysis because, you know, we're not really talking about, you know, I'm, t- I'm talking about feelings more than anything else. But it reminded me quite a bit, you know, this is a movie that everyone's been talking about w- lately, but it reminded me of when I saw Jean Dielman for the first time, where mm-hmm. I was riveted, I was bored. Yep. But I, uh, um, I was fascinated. I was all these things together. And yet, like, I finished watching this movie, had no idea what the fuck happened, and, but I was like, I, I want to watch it again. But I, I feel like I need to give it some time before I watch it again, because I'm still I'm still letting it all sink in. Like, we haven't even started digging yet, digging into the, really into the ending at all. Yeah. Um, and that is by far the, the, the trippiest part about this movie. I think, um, going back to your Jean Dielman, I think... Elevating the mundane as is an idea yes. that we've been um, talking about a lot in cinema and media recently. But Jean Dielman does that, right? Very, very intensely mm-hmm. and puts you in this place with this character. 
Um, I think that this film does it in a lot of ways. And I talked yeah. before about normalization and like um, life paths and trajectory, but you mentioned in the beginning how nothing, you know, very little happens in this movie. And that is so freaking true. He shows up at the, you know, the airport or whatever, calls his daughter, talks about what she wants for her birthday. She wants a sugar baby, which is illegal. Don't get one of those. But also horrifying. But also um, the vegan in me, just duh. But, um, but, you know, he has this very cute, mundane conversation with his daughter who you never see or hear about ever again, right? Because daddy's going to space. He's not thinking about her. And then um, they get to the, to the ship. And what do they do? They sleep. They sleep and they go for a run in their white surroundings and then they play chess with a computer and that yeah. and then they they you know they use a wrench to fix something at one point and that's like the that's the movie that is but you are you are absolutely engrossed and in this space the sound design the the beautiful settings etc you know these these movies gigantic rotating sets like. Um, singing in the rain could have never imagined where that was going to go, right? These rotating no. sets. And nothing happens. Nothing is going on until Hal wakes up, you know, wakes up to his sentience and is like, fuck this shit. Like, yeah, it is, you know. You had mentioned Interstellar before. Yeah. Interstellar, you know, it's, it's interesting because, like, it's... Christopher Nolan definitely, you know... He like worships the the altar of Kubrick, mm-hmm. but where he is completely different is he adds far much more e- emotion to yes. his films than Kubrick ever does. You know, like you you th- seems people remember from Interstellar is the scene of you know um, Matthew McConaughey realizing that his how, fa- how how long he's been asleep and how much his daughter is aged and you know this really emotional scene. Kubrick would never. Yep. He would just feel like that's beneath the film. But yet, like, you know, f- newer films need all these... I don't even, don't even want to say tricks because it's all things that have been in cinema forever. But I'll just say it, you know, need all these, like, little tricks and all these little things. Emotional to, gimmicks. Yes, make you feel something. And Cooper's like, no, people, these people are just going to fucking live their life and eat their weird fucking pudding shit and, you know, whatever happens, happens. You're going to feel it or you don't. Whatever. I don't give a shit. I'm Kubrick. I do want to um, make a, an argument again about masculinity in this movie and especially 1960s masculinity. Um, these men in this film are very proto-mid-century men. Like, they are Don Drapers in space in a lot of ways. Um, and yes. you don't see like that. I mean, obviously Don Draper is this like big tantrum baby trauma child, right? Like he's got this whole backstory and he's incredibly emotionally stunted, but also constantly looking for a mommy, you know, like that's a whole conversation that we inserted into that now that we're a little bit more comfortable talking about our feelings, but like men in the 1960s, right? They went to work. They had their home base, their families, but you didn't talk about them. You didn't, um, you know, that wasn't like your emotional base because you didn't have an emotional base because you are a provider and you have a job. You're an engineer in space or whatever, you know, like that is mm-hmm. what you're doing. Um, and I do think that that comes out very clearly in this film. It gives us a very nice, almost blank canvas for these men with fairly uncomplicated lives and feelings who are still, we can put our own fears and extreme um, tensions onto them, which is very useful for this story. But where science fiction has gone now, we're, we're talking about feelings and um, 
we're all we're exploring what happens when all those feel- feelings boil to the surface, which they were want to do. Like they were, it was going to happen, and it was happening in the '60s, right? Like the '60s were a time, especially in the United States, of incredible violence um, and rage and fight against the establishment, against you know all the isms. Like, but we didn't. That's not how we view the mid-century. We view it in this clean consumerist um, patina. Mm-hmm. Even if underneath things are bubbling, which I think Hal is the things that are bubbling. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, uh, that's a really interesting perspective on it, and I feel like I had a thought, but now I think it's just kind of like, like once again, this I'm you know this is this is going to be an interesting conversation on this because I'm still processing this yeah. film. But it is interesting what you were just saying about what the 1960s were like. And then you have a character like Hal who is rebelling. You know, you have the the, the computers are slaves to the humans. Mm-hmm. And they serve their function and nothing else. You know, because they their their thought process was well, you were built for this purpose. You don't have you don't have feelings. You don't have emotions. What does it matter if I make you do this or make you do that or oh you know well he made one mistake. We should probably restart him and start over from the beginning. And it's it's you know kind of like what you were saying before about what the world was like in in the 60s and even prior to that where people just assumed people of color didn't have feelings didn't have emotions didn't yeah couldn't feel things um women yeah. had a function you know yeah queers were abhorrent to the norm um and hal is very much pushing against that norm and challenging the status quo um i don't want to make hal like a straight um is hal metaphor <laughs> okay hal's always been my hero but um <laughs> but but I don't want to straight make a straight metaphor of how for like people of color and women and you know yeah, yeah. you know LGBTQI plus people, but but there's something there's to be read something in it. there. Yes, yes, I think um, yeah, and I'm not sure Kubrick would even was even close to thinking about any. He's of those probably like, eh, whatever. He's like, here is a challenge to that. Cool. That's all that means. He's a computer. He's a mad computer. What's it's, what are you reading it's, into it's, it? It's funny too. Like um, the. The actor Kier Delea, who plays mm-hmm. Doc, uh, Dr. David Bowman, it's just funny to me the the career that he is kind of he's had. So I I can only pick out three movies that he did, but he did this. A couple years later, he did Black Christmas, which is funny to think going from this big lavish production down to a really small Canadian film into the best slasher of all time. Yes, where you know in that movie he plays. Um, trying to think of the the lead actress's name in that movie um how am i blanking so much uh olivia hussey he was olivia hussey's boyfriend and uh you know the the crippled like the emotionally crippled man child who goes into a violent rage at the even thought of his girlfriend not keeping their baby and then another movie i've just seen him in very recently a movie called full circle also known as the haunting of julia he plays a piece of shit husband and he's He's just, it's like, I know he's been in more movies than these three things, but he's kind of got a uh, a trend going. <laughs> yeah, maybe extensions of that proto mid-century. I mean, obviously Black Christmas, we're, we're reaching into the 70s, which gets very, uh, very different. But mm-hmm. uh, as far as like socially 
what men look like. But kind of nice benchmarks for, like, masculinity there. It's also funny, too, that he made that movie after this, but yet he looks younger in that movie. <laughs> yeah, he plays... And he plays... I think the character must be younger, probably. He's, like, 22 or something. Yeah, he's probably... Like a, yeah, he probably I think he's a college student. Yeah. But, um... So... I've, uh, one thing I, wa- I wanted to see if you had any theories on, because I absolutely do not. <laughs> the ending of this film, mm-hmm. you know, when um, he, he kind of traverses through time and space via the monolith and then wakes up in this hotel room and encounters variations of himself. I know it has something to say about life, death, and rebirth. Mm-hmm. But I almost feel like, I, I don't know if that's too simplistic or I don't know what this this movie is trying to tell me in the end, and then you have like this weird little star child baby, and you've seen this movie way more than I do, so I wanted to pick your brain. Up. Yeah, all right. So um, number one, I don't think your interpretation is incorrect. I don't think anyone's interpretation is incorrect. I think that we can interpret art um, however we would like. But that Fair being enough. said, here's all the ways you're wrong. Just kidding. No, no. No. I do think... I was hoping. I was hoping. Yeah, tell me. Tell me why I'm wrong. No, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think, um, you know, you could view it in a life cycle for sure. Death, you know, birth, death, rebirth. I think um, as a child, when I saw this film, something I didn't discuss at the beginning because I was hoping this would come up. Um, I, and this is still very scary. I think all of us remember the moment that this happened to us. At some point, right around watching this movie, I found out that one day I was going to die. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I think most of us have the moment when a parent or somebody explained or we saw something that indicated to us that we were going to die at some point. Um, and what a horrifying thought. Like, And the moment when you can actually comprehend that is like a horrifying benchmark in your humanity. Like, awful. Um, so I definitely connected that experience with this movie... And that ending scene is absolutely death of some kind. Like, he is going somewhere that we do not know the desti- the final destination of. And I, we also were exiting at that time, my family, um, around that time we were starting to exit the Catholic Church, which has some very specific ideas about death and what comes after. Um, and it was a very confusing time for me, theologically, as like a six or seven-year-old, um, <laughs> to go from this like very sure... This is what is what will happen to we don't know what's going to happen. Good luck. Like, and and you're going to go there someday. And all of us are. Um, And then I watch this movie and he touches death and goes somewhere so unknown. As as a child, I think the unknown isn't deeply scary yet because we haven't been like hurt enough yet to be really dark about it. But it's still, you know, mom's not there. Like, I don't know where Sandy is in this in this next, you know, Sandy being my elephant, you know, in this next iteration. Like, I don't know where my safe my safe touch points are because it removes all safe touch points in that final scene. Um, and mm-hmm. I think I'm not sure it's a hotel room. I think it's like his deathbed. I think we're in his bedroom. We're in like our space bedroom. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I didn't think it was like literally yeah, a hotel, but it. Kind it of I mean, like oh a, yeah, it's so clean, and I mean, we're we're seeing the yeah. Overlook Hotel effect, right? Like in the the, the yeah. beginnings of the Overlook Hotel. But I think for me, we saw where his life could go. So he um, doesn't get the rest of his life because he met with the star with the the star child um, too early, and he is. Um, and there's literally what's happening in the book, and then there's my interpretation, and that's. Um, I think that he saw where his life could end up, which is in this room where he is now going to, you know, pass away into the unknown. 
And that is stripped away from him. And that's when we start getting into the Star Corridor. Like things are being removed. He's going somewhere, but things are also falling off of him. And then he becomes this star child. He evolves. Um, and the books follow the, the star child through like these iterations and explorations of like what evolution means and what humanity means and all this stuff. But the movie leaves us with the star child. And that's terrifying. But also um, I think that he there wasn't a death. I think that he leapt over death into something else. Oh, interesting. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we should have been like way more high for this. Um, also, like I have seen this movie high several times and it was a terrifying experience. I don't actually recommend it, especially if you remain high through to the end. Uh, I, I feel life. like I feel like one of two things is going to happen if I got stoned while watching this movie. <laughs> I would fall asleep bef- yeah, like yeah, within yeah. the first 40 minutes yeah, yeah, yeah. or two. It would just give me a panic attack. I, so I know people, like, I feel like if, if you smoke in the beginning or whatever, I do edibles for movies usually, um, fine. Like, I can get through those apes or whatever. Those dang dirty apes are fine. But I know people who, like, this movie is beautiful, excuse me, because it actually has an intermission, um, which God bless it. Bring back. Well, that intermission, though, comes way the fuck late in the movie. Yes, but that's the intermission where you go toke up and then you watch the Star Corridor High, which to me would give me, yeah, a fucking hey. panic attack. But I know a lot of people who do it. Um, but can we just talk about how we need to bring intermissions back? Like, fucking bring. Yes, I've been saying intermissions this forever. Back. God damn it. I love yes. live theater, and I would love um, if cinema could go back to a live theater format. With yes, and there's like you know, I just it's a very different type of movie. But I just saw Guardians of the Galaxy three yesterday, and it's like, man, I wish I would have had an intermission because one, I had to pee, and then two, like, I just you don't want to get up because you don't know what you're gonna miss in a movie. It's just, we we need to bring that back. Well, I usually plus, just get up and then I ask the person next to me real loud when I get back, "What did I miss?" Everyone loves it. Yeah, Everyone loves it. That's usually what Amanda's job is to let me know what I missed because <laughs> I have the bladder of a child, um, and like, you just. Plus, I just think it's it's a it's it's an interesting emotional tactic to put an intermission because, you know, something it's like a cliffhanger on a television show. Something big happens, and then you got to go sit for five or ten minutes and just fucking sit with it for a little bit and talk to the person you're next to, and then we're gonna come back and see what happens. Well, they need to bring that back, especially for this movie. Now you get to talk about all your theories, right? Yeah. Like, and and you can talk about like, wow, what the fuck did Hal do? Like, that's crazy, you know, like. Or what you know? What's gonna happen in the spaceship? I can't remember exactly where the intermission is, but it's it's so. This movie's also it's just what a bold choice to have. You don't even have a line of dialogue spoken until the thirty-five to forty-minute mark. Oh yeah. And then the dialogue that is spoken is just like, "Well, how's work?" Bullshit has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> Again, I said elevating the mundane. He nailed it. It's him. It's, you know, our Sean Dealmans of cinema. It's Cleo from 9 to 5, like, 9 to, nine to 7. I can't remember. It's 7 to 5 to 7. Cleo at 5 to 7. I got there. Um, I feel like I'm just going to bring up that movie anytime I'm on this podcast. <laughs> it's going to be our running gag. Um, yeah, definitely. I just love Varda so much. Um, but, yeah, it's elevating that mundane to make us feel comfortable before he just punches us in the goddamn gut with the star child. It's, it's even more funny to like now having seen this movie. Yeah. Cause like a complaint that people had 
for both versions, but of, of Dune was that it's boring and nothing happens. It's like, I just, just want to be like, you want to see boring and nothing happens. Do I got a movie for you? I when you you know I haven't heard that because I think anyone I know would be terrified to say that to my face. But like you saying that through the camera just now, like gave me such like a gut twist of like how dare you talk about my. I don't feel that way about it. That way, but I've seen you've that heard, complaint you've heard, online. You've heard from yeah, because I love the new Dune. No, I know I don't love the new Dune, um, but it's good. You know, I here. Okay, let me just say something really offensive on your podcast right now in recording. Um, Chalamet and Zendaya, Zendaya. Mm-hmm. Um, is his name Chalamet? Chalamet. Sorry, I'm. I don't know. Worst. How to I'm the name. worst in this podcast right now. Those two were the wor- were terribly cast. The worst casting of those they two characters. Are, I, I terrible. Agree. So I I like the new Dune quite a bit, but I agree. Like, I thought honestly, I thought the cast in Dave Lynch's version was better. Okay, better, but they needed to like get rid of some of those white people. But yes, but, yes, that's fair. I will say. Paul, I think that Paul Muadib is a very misunderstood character in, like, what he is supposed to be. And that is a boring, suburban white boy who we can then put our own impressions on. And, like, Chalamet, I don't think, I mean, he he's a very talented actor, but he adds, like, this very dramatic flair in a very specific way to any role he's in, and it's too much for Paul Mwadib. He's getting into this, like, really sullen place, and that's not appropriate. You need to just be a dumb, like, Kyle MacLachlan character. Kyle MacLachlan's not dumb, but he a lot of his characters are these kind of, like, floating around suburban boys. I don't really know what's going on. So go with the flow. That works for Paul Mwadib, because then he's able to be molded into Mwadib, right? Oh, I'm just thinking... I love the description of... of um... Kyle MacLachlan as a dumb suburban kid. I mean, his characters. I his character. No, I think, no, I, I think know. he's a very intelligent <laughs> man. Um, but I'm thinking about you know like his character in in Sex and the City, um, Blue Velvet, and Paul Mwadib are all the same character. Like I don't see a difference between any of them. Frankly, <laughs> they all cheat. They're all fucking cheaters. And they probably all like coffee, like Agent Cooper, too. Like, you know, go with the flow. It just kind of is like, okay, that makes sense about anything. That's who he always plays. I have to tell you this story. I probably yeah. won't I probably won't keep it in mm-hmm. because it's, 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 but it's, I think it's really funny. So a couple years ago, we had seen uh, a house of a clock in its walls. Uh, and it had Kyle MacLachlan in it. Mm-hmm. And we weren't aware of that when we went to go see it. So we both just kind of like popped when we saw him. It's like, oh, fuck yeah, yeah Kyle yeah. MacLachlan's in this movie. And we were talking, after the movie, we were talking about like, because he kind of becomes like an undead character in there. And we were talking about his makeup in the movie. And Amanda's like, oh, I just didn't, don't think it looked very good. It looked like CGI to me. It's like, I'm pretty confident if that's makeup. Um, and she tweets it to Kyle MacLachlan and just says, was your makeup in, you know, the house on the clock with its walls, CGI or, 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 um, Practical makeup, or actual yeah. makeup? And he fucking replies. Yes, Kyle! And is like, is like, oh, it was a really talented artist by the name of it. And he's like showing like behind the scenes photos and everything. And Amanda's like, I feel really bad right now. Okay. <laughs> you like cannot CGI. tweet this podcast at him because I don't want him to hear me. Like, I'm fine saying that, but I don't want him to hear me saying he's like a dumb suburban boy. Because like, I know, of course, he is a smart <laughs> vineyard owner who I respect yes, the I, shit out of. 
And I'm going to cut that little story out just because Amanda's embarrassed by it. Oh, but I have to tell that's you. so lovely. No, that's a lovely story. She should be very proud of that. Um, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that question. Whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Kyle MacLachlan, but he was the right care- casting for Paul. Yeah. In the same way that, going back to this movie, these characters are, like, excellent dramatic actors, but they their role is to, like, sit around and play chess and act manly when something goes wrong yeah but even like even that it's like the vision of manliness is still very different than say it was you know like even five to ten years earlier in science fiction where like uh so many like science fiction leading men were just these square jawed i'll punch the alien type of guys and you know here you have intellectuals who actually come across as intellectuals you know you don't have some guy named brock who's supposed to have a phd um i believe these people as being intellectuals and just sitting around watching the news eating their weird slop playing chess with each other like (laughs) it's a it's a different because i i feel like there was a period of time in science fiction where it was still you still had the john wayne type leading man but just in science fiction I think those. I think that was the beginning of science. Like that was the beginning of yes, science fiction. Yes. Like Ooh. serials. Like like I keep talking about Flash Gordon because he's a very important touchstone in science fiction, and that is the square jawed cowboy coming in, punching aliens, and getting babes. Right. That's the the Kirk prototype. It is really funny just thinking about it that George Lucas, you know, came in making Star Wars, being like, I love Flash Gordon, but I also love two thousand one. Mm-hmm. What happens if I mix them together? And that's kind of how you have Star Wars. Yeah, that and fucking loved opera. Uh, <laughs> he yeah. loved drama. Um, don't we all, you know? I I was thinking about this movie and thinking about the horrors of space and um, Alien, a film that came out 10 years after this, um, which has almost all the same elements of this film, except um, Ripley was supposed to be a man. And they cast, mm-hmm. you know, the wonderful Sigourney Weaver and created one of the best female science fiction characters of all time um, oh, yeah. on film. And in that movie, instead of getting this beautiful star child at the end where we're, we're scared, but we're going somewhere at least, it's so brutally physical. Like at the end, it's like it's not like, oh, what if like we're going to transform into something? It's like, no, you're going to transform into something. And it's going to fucking come out of your gut and kill you. And then, you know, the thing that you fight is going to be this brutal, physical, um, you know, not primitive thing by any means, but very, very real. Like there's no conceptual stuff going on there. It's, you know, it's the unknown, but it's going to fucking come and punch through your gut. Like, yeah, it's it's it. But it's using a lot of the same cinematic effects, especially Mm -hmm. in that intro. And I had seen the movie Alien before. Um, I really love that movie for the characters and like the and those mundane conversations that are happening. You know, they're talking about labor rights, right? They're talking about our pay, and they're talking about this food sucks, and like you know, let's make some sexist joke. Yeah, Yafet Koto just talking about how much he's going to get paid for this job is so fucking compelling, so compelling, and so relatable. Like hell yeah, like oh well, well, he does everything on that ship. This is this is a job. It's not like oh let's go explore through space. It's like man, that it's it it. Alien feels more like people on, like, a fishing boat 
than it does people in a spaceship. I mean, it is. They're right. They're um. They're I can't remember if they're transporting or mining or what, but they're they're doing yeah. you know something in they're space. They're just whalers on a moon. Um, <laughs> but um, Alien. When I when I saw that movie, I watched it uh, on my lamp post Mac computer. So it was it was a, it was a Mac that had this like movable screen attached to this like little dome. Um, and it was like the shittiest resolution. The screen was like super shiny, so you couldn't really see anything. And I was sitting in my room at college on the floor because I didn't have any other furniture and like had a blanket over me and the screen trying to make it dark as possible. Um, and that's how I watched that movie. And I was like, wow, what a cool movie. And then I saw it in 70 millimeter at Doc Films at U of Chicago. And, and um, that intro brought back my sublime wonder and terrifying feelings around space like i hadn't felt since i saw you know 2001 at six years old like the way that i feel about the ocean is now how i feel about space and yeah um that intro is one of the scariest science fiction intros i've ever seen in my entire fucking life and it uses the models and the blackness of space in the same way that we're looking at in 2001 I guess what I would say to people, it's kind of like my wrapping up mm-hmm. thoughts, or um, for people who have seen 2001 A Space Odyssey and either don't like it, don't know what to make of it, what have you. Because like, I feel like I feel like if I were to meet someone right now and, and talk about this movie, and they're like, oh, I fucking love 2001 A Space Odyssey, I'd be like, right? And then if I met someone else, they're like, oh, I hate that movie. And I'm like, right? Like, I get it. I get it. Um, but there's science fiction before... 2001 a space odyssey and there's science fiction after and you you know i watch something like once again the first star wars or alien or so many of these films that came out it's all it's all these these kids who saw 2001 a space odyssey and saw what was fucking possible and just wanted to go and make their own version of it and it's like star wars is often said as like oh it's the movie that launched a thousand movies i think this is this is it. Yeah, that's such a weird um, description of Star Wars to me. Because for me, Star Wars is such has so many obvious progenitors, and like is such an obvious result of um, decades of science fiction cinema, including a trip to the moon. Like starting there, we end at Star Wars, which um, I know it inspired a lot of copycats but I don't think any of them are nearly as good. Whereas I think all the things that came before Star Wars were, you know, better or as good as Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I think, like, this is really the movie that... And I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does get the credit, but should have the credit. Mm-hmm. Like, Because like, you watch 2001 Space Odyssey. I was watching, I was like, oh, I see elements of Star Wars. I see elements of of uh, Star Trek. I see elements of all these other things. Actually, I don't know when Star Trek came out, so that's probably not the best. But, you know, well, hell, actually, yeah, Star Trek, because Star Trek, the motion picture, kind of rips off this, uh, the the ending of this movie a little bit. With their, um, There's there's an effect in Star Trek, the motion picture, that feels very much like that, uh, what, what, what would you call the, the, the Stargate? Star, or or the, the Star Corridor? The Star Corridor. There's a scene in Star Trek The Motion Picture that feels a lot like they were trying to go for the same thing. And that was 1979. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, I don't remember when the original TV show the came The 60s. Out, but... So it was it was comparable yeah. to this. Yeah. But it's... There's just... I have, but I feel like all the Star Trek that came out after... 
after this movie existed felt at times a little more like this than it felt like the 60s Star Trek. I think, um, I mean, the 60s Star Trek, I, I, I tend to kind of dismiss it as like a Flash Gordon post science fiction, but of course it was dealing with civil rights quite directly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that is very important. Um, and I think that later, thank God later Star Treks latched onto, with the exception of Abrams, latched onto that and that messaging and that exploration um, rather than the more uh, titillating elements. Yeah. All right. So one thing that we tend to do on this show is we talk, uh, it's a term that I coined the thrill house moment, the moment in the, in when you, in your, in your, since you've seen this movie so many times, it probably might get a little murky, but the moment in this movie that kind of like clenched you or, you know, it could be a favorite moment, but the moment that just kind of got its hooks into you and made you realize that you fucking love this. Oh boy. Let me think for a minute here. And you're right. I have seen this movie so many times. Like I talked about before, so many different points in my life that, like, you know, every so, like, moment, you know, at some point, yeah. Like my so like, moment. but let me, let me. Okay, when I was so when I was six, I did not love this movie. I was terrified but enthralled fair. because my mother fucking loved it, and I was like, "What is this all about?" And it's a long movie for a six year old to sit through. I don't know what I was doing, but um, it's a long movie for a thirty three year old. Oh my to god, sit seriously. But um, what moment? You know, I love, um, we talk about the term liminal a lot. I, I move in um, academic spaces. We make a lot of jokes about queering and liminal because everyone overuses mm-hmm. them and no one really knows what they mean. But this movie, you can argue that it's all liminal space, but I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of static space that is moving. But that the scene where he gets off of the airplane, the Orion shuttlecraft, and um, is like calling his daughter and just waiting to get on, you know, the big the big mission he's going on. That scene is just a liminal space where he's just like sitting in the egg chair and going to talk to his daughter on the phone, and like these secretaries are like bringing him coffee. Like that scene, I was like after the first scene, which is so terrifying and reaches something very primitive in you or, or, or something that's very manufactured and primitive. And then you have this amazing, beautiful special effects scene where the stewardess is like is grabbing a pen and, and giving him his coffee on the plane or whatever they do. And then you just have this fucking airport scene where he's just like chilling in an airport. Like how many times have I done that? It's so fucking boring. And I loved it. And I was like, this movie fucking rules. Every moment of this movie fucking rules because I love this airport scene. For me, it was a pretty light lock-in for me, mm-hmm. but the scene that really got me, because it just showed me, I think, it, it, it was almost like the moment where this movie started telling me its secrets, even though I didn't mm. quite still get it, was the scene when the first search party were was approaching the monolith on the moon. Oh, I, okay, Mike, I forgot about that scene. And that's like, for someone who's seen this film so many times, there's just so many scenes where you're like, that was the scene. I love that scene. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's really, it's, you know, the movie, it, going back to my analogy of this kind of being a symphony, this movie has its ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. It starts off really intense with these, these primitive people and, you know, fighting and killing and then it slows itself down and you get the airport scene and you get all of this 
and then it starts ratcheting up the tension with this this monolith on the moon and then you don't quite know what happens but it puts you on like a sense it, it puts you in this state of anxiety and then it slows down again yeah I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I forgot about the, the moon scene is very important because it's the setup for the horror of the rest of it, right? That unknown. Mm-hmm. And I think that Alien, going back to the movie, draws on that a lot. That same, um, you know, screams off camera kind of moment that I think is, uh, I don't know, kind of new to cinema. I'm trying to think of a film from the 60s. This is pre-slasher, right? Like we're, we're, we're just about to enter the slasher era. Like, when else in cinema do we get this, like, oh, my God, something's happening, but we can't see it. That isn't in, like, a deep sea movie, right? Like, some Jules mm-hmm. Verne shit. Um, and even then, it was very rare. So did this film launch that horror trope? Yeah. At least at least in cinema, because, once again, going back to Lovecraft, he was writing about his fear of the dark forever. <laughs> oh, Lovecraft. You know, Haunter in the Dark was just about a guy not liking the dark. Like that was it. <laughs> relatable. Hashtag relatable. Uh, but it, we hadn't really seen it much, in, and I'm sure someone out there is going to be like, "Well, really, it happened first oh, here." Certainly, but, but like, no way but, did it have the reach that Kubrick had, though. Is my point? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I also think this film, um, especially with that moon sequence, there's a lot to be said about. Um, the future of uh, found footage horror and this film, mm-hmm. uh, which we don't yeah, need to because get that into, was like the yeah. only sequence in this movie that was shot handheld, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that just and that felt especially strange. And in 1968, it was not easy to shoot things handheld. Oh, no. Those cameras were fucking huge. Yeah. Uh, so that was a statement, you know, because with all the resources Kubrick had, if he wanted that shot to be steady, it would have been steady. Oh yeah. He just didn't want it to be. No, I mean, and he's imagining, right, like the moon um, mm-hmm. and what it's like to be there. Um, it's almost like a loss of control. Yeah. Because, you know, the, so much of the, the rest of the film was just so meticulous. But here you have this, you know, this scene of, of, of being afraid of the unknown and now the camera's moving around in a more chaotic way, so the audience doesn't know what to feel. They've the been lulled into this of yeah, they, found footage. Yeah, take that Blair Witch Shaky Project. Cam. Nailed it. Okay, great. I'm glad that we um, discovered the the beginning of found footage because no other film before this has ever had ever used handheld cameras ever. Not a single no. one. Get out of here, Nindo. <laughs> yeah, You're not, we don't None need of them. you. Um, but yeah, I, what a great conversation surrounding this movie. I, you know, I, I love this movie. I loved when you reached out to me. This was a definite like fuck yeah moment when you, I think it was like 6am or something or whatever. And you were like, tells me space odyssey. And I was like, fuck yes. Yeah. Cause I'd finished it. Cause I had to break it up into uh, two yeah. just cause I was getting tired. So I was like, you know, I think I broke it up. I had about an hour left in the movie. So it was just right before, sh- I think it was right when Hal was like, Put yeah this is not happening oh, no. i was like okay this is a good place yeah Stop. <laughs> let's let's not watch the scary shit that's about to go down um but i i feel like i don't get to talk about this movie at this level i mean rarely do any of us get to talk about movies at this level which more of us should i i fucking love hearing people get excited and like you know everybody sharing their thoughts around it and their knowledge but 
Um, this movie, like you said, everyone has feelings about it. But I feel like when I talk to people about it, they've seen it for the first time and they either either they're super into science fiction and they are like, what the fuck was this? Because it was like nothing like my Star Trek or my, you know, uh, Battlestar or anything else. Or they're like really into the technical stuff and totally ignore the like commentary on like humanity and stuff like that. And I think this movie is very comprehensive in all regards. Um, and I don't know. I just like being able to have a comprehensive conversation about it. Yeah. It's a, to me, this, there's just some movies that have come across in my life where I just want to consume everything about it. Yeah. Um, most notorious was, was Halloween for me. Cause that was the movie that just kind of opened up the world of what can be done with filmmaking at a young age for me. Um, even though it's not nearly as complicated as something like this, but it, but it touched, it, yeah, it touched you at the right time. Dis- it was a discovery. It was a big discovery moment. And I feel like this and apocalypse now are two other movies that I just like, I just, I just need to understand this movie. I, you know, this movie did not, um, when I was young and for a very long time, I was able to take movies at a very like, cool. That's something that I watched level like it, I didn't think about how you make a movie or like why a narrative does what it does and I, I mean I've been a writer from a very young age right like I was trained in high school so like at age 14 I started having to write narratives two hours a day every day um, so I was thinking about story but I was still able to watch movies and be like wow that was crazy those characters did a bunch of shit cool I'm trying to think about like what movie made me want to like understand anything about cinema um, and I, I don't know that I have an answer for that right now. Because at some point, something did. Something, you know, inspired this, not just love of cinema, but like a deep desire to like understand it. And I don't know what it was. Well, I look forward to hearing the answer one yeah, day. Yeah, I'm going to think about it. I'll have an answer in well, like two hours. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on this, this show for me. Pretty in pretty like quick turnaround too because like i think i asked you on sunday if you wanted to do it and um there's nothing that would have stopped me from talking about 2001 space odyssey on this podcast and what i always appreciate about having you on the show is i never can predict where the fuck an episode with you is gonna go and that's the most thrilling thing and it's what and what you're saying earlier about being able to sit down and just really talk about a movie is something we as people don't really get to do anymore and that is what kept, it's kept me going for seven years doing this. God, seven it gives me years. a chance to yeah, yeah, seven seasons. Uh, our first episode launched when I was on. Actually, we started recording it. We were recording it early on, but I think the first episode might have dropped right around when we were, I was on my honeymoon. Wow, God, Mike, I've known you so long. I've known you such a long time. We've been through I know, so we've only been since college. God, I've seen you grow up. I saw you get married through a Facebook album. I watched you go yeah. on those dates through Facebook. Um, but, you know, like, I, yeah, and now, you know, release your first film, your first short film, start this podcast, continue your, you know, film work. And continue connecting people in movies for the last, like, 10 years or something. I think it's been, like, over 10 years. It has to have been over 10 years. It's been, like, 11 years. Yeah, it has been. Wow. And you kind of touched on it. That's what I want to do. It's I just want to... I want to celebrate film culture and connect people. 
It's phenomenal. Thank you again for coming on. Thanks for and having me. This is this is not going to be the first time you this uh, you'll be on this season. For anyone listening, uh, Josephine was on earlier this season to talk about Spice World. She's on for this, and I'll have you on later in the season to talk about Possession. Hell yeah! Uh, and I feel like there might be Blue one. Blue Velvet. Too. We're gonna do Blue Velvet. Blue. I know uh, your friend was going to do Blue Velvet. I didn't know if you're going to jump on. For I'm going to jump well. on. I got things to say, but I also um, I want to hear what she has to say before anyone else does. Perfect. Well, need to be there first. There's going to be a lot of Josephine on this season. Of the Shameless Picture Show. Uh, but I have got to go figure out what I'm doing for dinner. So um, I don't. I'm struggling to remember what my sign off was at this moment. So I'll just say good night. <laughs> See you later, Space Cowboy. <laughs> Fuck! That was so much better. <laughs> The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.